Hi, I'm Brad Constantine, and this is a Come Follow Me podcast of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official podcast of the church, every effort has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. This year's study is the Book of Mormon. Each week, a new summary podcast of that week's Book of Mormon chapters will be released. But if you want a more detailed analysis of each individual chapter, those will also be available to listen to. I hope this Come Follow Me resource will be helpful to you. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast so you'll be notified each week of a new episode. I hope you like this uh, format. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to this Come Follow Me podcast of the Book of Mormon. This uh, episode is going to be lesson number 41. It's going to cover 3rd Nephi 27 to 4th Nephi. And then it's also for the period October 19th through the 25th. So this is uh, the wrapping up of the of the uh, ministry of Jesus among the Nephites. Uh, they're going to ask about what the name of the church ought to be. There's going to be some things about uh, translated beings uh, because of the three Nephites and the golden age of the Nephites in this episode. All right, so let's get started with this. So chapter 27, uh, the, the disciples have been praying. Um, Notice in verse um, verse 3, it says, Lord, we will that thou wouldst tell us the name whereby we shall call this church, for there are disputations among the people concerning this matter. Now, you wonder why they would even be arguing about it. It seems like a pretty easy answer. Of course, we, we understood, or we understand because it was revealed to us. Um, and then in verse 5, the Lord says, um, Have they not read the scriptures which say ye must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name? For by this name shall you be called at the last day. And so as we uh, as we talk about what should the name of the church be, obviously it should be the name of the, should be the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, back in 1990, President Nelson, uh, at the time a member of the Twelve, gave a talk in general conference on, on the name of the church. He said um, some interesting things here. He says the first two words of the name the Lord chose for his earthly organization are the church. Note that the article, the, begins with a capital letter. This is an important part of the title for the church is, an official, is the official organization of baptized believers who have taken upon themselves the name of Christ. A lot of people wonder why it's even necessary to have a church organization. Can't I just worship in my home or in nature or whatever? But the purpose of the church is to have an organized way in which the ordinances can be administered, both inside and outside of the temple. The church is the way by which the master accomplishes his work and bestows his glory. Its ordinances and related covenants are the crowning rewards of our membership. While many organizations can offer fellowship and fine instruction, only his church can provide baptism, confirmation, ordination, the sacrament, patriarchal blessings, and the ordinances of the temple, all bestowed by authorized priesthood power. That power is destined to bless all children of our Heavenly Father, regardless of their nationality. He goes on to say, um, by divine directive, the title of the church bears the sacred name of Jesus Christ, whose church this is. We worship God, the eternal Father, in the name of his Son, by the power of the Holy Ghost. We know the premortal Jesus to be Jehovah, God of the Old Testament. We know him to be the chief cornerstone upon which the organization of his church is based. We know him to be the rock from whom revelation comes to his authorized agents and to all who worthily seek him. And then he just goes on to talk in verse 8 about uh, if it, how, how be it my church, save it be called by my name. 
And so uh, that's in verse uh, 8. So, again, the name of the church has to be after uh, Jesus' name. Milton R. Hunter said, The early Christians in the Mediterranean world took upon themselves the name of Christ. As you all recall, they were known generally as Christians. But as their numbers began to spread and become rather numerous in the Mediterranean world, and as the, as the seeds of apostasy began to grow about 185 AD, the leaders decided to change the name to Catholic, to Catholic, meaning universal. Thus, by choosing to call themselves universal, they lost the name or set aside the name that God had, cre had decreed would be the only name given under heaven whereby mankind may be saved. The Grand Richards made this interesting comment. He says, The matter of the name his church should bear was of great importance to the Savior. Thus, the name of the church was not obtained through study or research, but by revelation direct from the Lord. Does it not seem incredible that of all the churches in the world, there was not one that bore his name when the Lord restored his church in this dispensation? Now, it's not just important that the church bear his name, but it also must bear his gospel. In verse 11, he says, If if it be not built upon my gospel and is built upon the works of men or upon the works of the devil. Verily I say unto you, they have joy in their works for a season, and by and by the end cometh, and they are hewn down and cast into the fire, from whence there is no return. In other words, if the church, even though it may have his name on it, if it's not done with his gospel, it is still not the valid church of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13 he mentions, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel which I have given unto you that I came into the world to do the will of my Father because my Father sent me. Elder McConkie said, Nothing in the entire plan of salvation compares in any way in importance with the atoning sacrifice of our Lord. It is the rock foundation upon which the gospel and all other things rest. It is the foundation upon which all truth rests, and all things grow out of it and, and come because of it. Indeed, the atonement is the gospel. In verse 16, he pretty much sums up the gospel. He says, It shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled, and if he endureth to the end, behold, him will I hold guiltless before my Father at that day, when I shall stand to judge the world. Here he's talking about the basic principles of the gospel, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end, and the final judgment. And these are the basics of the of the gospel with the atonement as the central central focus. And then in verse 19, he says, And no unclean thing can enter into his kingdom. Therefore, nothing entereth into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and the repentance of all their sins and their faithfulness unto the end. Uh, Millet McConkie said, We cannot cleanse our sin-stained lives by mere washing in the strong detergent of self-discipline. It requires a celestial cleanser, one which we cannot purchase for ourselves, but is purchased for us by the grace of God, the blood of Christ. In verse 22, he says, Therefore, if ye do these things, meaning obedience to the gospel principles and ordinances, blessed are ye, for ye shall be lifted up at the last day. Elder Busser McConkie said, Viewed from our mortal position, the gospel is all that is required to take us back to the eternal presence, there to be crowned with glory and honor, immortality and eternal life. To gain these greatest of all rewards, two things are required. The first is the atonement by which all men are raised in immortality with those who believe and obey ascending also unto eternal life. This atoning sacrifice was the work of our blessed Lord and he has done his work. The second requisite is obedience on our part to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Thus, the gospel is in effect the atonement, 
but the gospel is also all of the laws, principles, doctrines, rights, ordinances, acts, powers, authorities, and keys needed to save and exalt fallen man in the highest heaven hereafter. Then in verse 26, he talks about um, all things are written by the Father. Uh, therefore, out of the book shall be written, uh, everybody shall be judged. And so uh, we wonder how that might occur. The judgment will occur. Verse 27 says, know ye that ye shall be judges of this people. He's talking to the Nephite 12 here. Uh, the Nephite 12, along with Jesus's original 12, probably coupled with all who have held keys of the priesthood, will be involved in judging the righteous of the house of Israel. As judges in Israel, they will be voices of advocacy for those who have lived the gospel, borne the cross of Christ in their daily lives, and endured in faith to the end. The reality is that there will be a whole hierarchy of judges who, under Christ, shall judge the righteous. He alone shall issue the decrees of damnation for the wicked. And that was by Bruce McConkie. And then in 29, he mentions, uh, in 28, he mentions he's going to be going back to the Father. 29, he says, therefore ask, and you shall receive, knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Uh, this is one of the, the most often repeated commandments that he gives us that we're supposed to be asking for things. Uh, Elder Packer says, it's clear that the Lord wants us to come unto him and ask him for whatever we need. The simple invitation to ask, and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you, was repeated by the Lord on many occasions. He gave this message to the people he taught while he lived on earth. He repeated it twice to the people of the new world at the time of his visit to them following his resurrection, including his last words he gave them before returning to his Father in heaven. Interestingly, the Lord repeated the same invitation seven times in the Doctrine and Covenants in varying ways throughout the scriptures. He has invited us to ask him for whatever we need in righteousness that he might give it unto us. The initiative then is ours. We must ask and pray and seek and then we will find. And then the, the last verse in the chapter 33 says, uh, it, it, after he ended these sayings, he says, Enter ye into the straight gate, for straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life. He's talking here about uh, the gate being repentance and baptism. Um, and so he's telling him to, to repent in this life, uh, for this life is the time to prepare to meet God. So then chapter 28, let's get into that one. So uh, he asks the twelve, uh, in verse 1, when Jesus said these words, he spake unto his disciples one by one, saying unto them, What is it that ye desire of me after that I am gone to the Father? So just think about this. What would you ask if, if you could ask for anything and the Savior would grant it to you? What would be the one thing you would want? Um, and so it says in verse 2, they all spake, save it were three, saying, We desire that after we have lived unto the age of man, that our ministry wherein thou hast called us may have an end, that we may speedily come unto thee in, our, in thy kingdom. Elder McConkie said, we conclude from this that they desired to remain in paradise for but a short time, after which they would come forth in immortal glory and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God to go no more out. Jesus grants their request, blessed are ye because ye desired this thing of me. Uh, so what they're asking for is that instead of being in the spirit world until the second coming happens, which would be thousands of years from this time, that they would rather be uh, resurrected soon after their death so that they could then come into the celestial kingdom and be with Jesus rather than waiting for the couple thousand years until he comes again. So that's what they're asking for. Now, um, he's saying that that was a great request and good for you and all that stuff. Uh, but then he comes to the three and um, it's interesting that they, at verse five, it says they sorrowed in their hearts for they, they didn't dare say what they wanted. 
But Jesus understands their thoughts. He says, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. And so um, he's, they're asking then for um, to be translated so that they don't have to be, um, they, don't, they won't die, but that they get, to, they get to stay here upon the earth. And in verse 7 it says, Therefore more blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death. Now Mormon corrects this in verse 37. Uh, after he's prayed to know more about it, he says that they will die, but will be changed in an instant to a celestial being. So they're going to be from a terrestrial body to a celestial. Uh, and so they will have to die still, but it will be a different kind of death. It will be a, a changing in a, in a twinkling, or to be twinkled, I like to call it, from uh, their terrestrial condition to a celestial. Uh, mentions in verse 7 again, Ye shall live to behold all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven. And ye shall never endure the pains of death. Now it doesn't say that they won't endure death, but it says that they won't endure the pains of death. But when I shall come in my glory, ye shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality, and then shall ye be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. Elder McConkie says, Will translated beings ever die? Note that Jesus promises the three Nephites not that they should not die, but that they shall never taste of death and shall not endure the pains of death. Again, it is an, it is a, a, an, it is an unusual declaration or a mysterious declaration with a hidden meaning. There is a distinction between death as we know it and tasting of death or enduring the pains of death. As a matter of doctrine, death is universal. Every mortal thing, whether plant or animal or man, shall surely die. Jacob said, Death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator. There, there are no exceptions, not even among translated beings. Again, the dominion of death over all is a claim, but the Lord says of all his saints, not that they will not die, but that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. The distinction is between dying as such and tasting of death itself. Again, the Lord says um, that those that live uh, when the Lord shall come, uh, that they also be, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Thus, this change from mortality to immortality, though almost instantaneous, is both a death and a resurrection. Thus, translated beings do not suffer death as we normally define it, meaning the separation of body and spirit, nor do they receive a resurrection as we ordinarily describe it, meaning that the body rises from the dust and the spirit enters again into its freshly, into its freshly home. But they do pass through death and are changed from mortality to immortality in the eternal sense, and they thus both die and are resurrected in the eternal sense. This, we might add, is why Paul wrote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It would appear that all persons who were translated before the resurrection of Christ, Enoch and his city, Melchizedek and his city, Elijah, Moses, Alma the Younger, Nephi, and so forth, were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. Persons who are translated after the time of Christ's resurrection will minister in their terrestrial state until the second coming. At that time, they will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, transformed instantaneously from their mortal terrestrial condition to a resurrected, fully immortal condition. And that was by Millet McConkie. Also, those that live during the millennium will live in a state akin to translation. His body uh, will be changed so that it no longer is subject to disease or death as we know it. Although he will be changed, speaking about us, although he will be changed in the twinkling of an eye to full immortality when he is a hundred years of age, he will, however, have children and mortal life in a millennial kind, 
of a millennial kind will continue. There will be those who are on probation for whom earth life is a probationary estate and who are thus working out their own salvation. Isaiah's description of life and death during the millennium seems to preserve the concept that even then, even in that blessed day when Satan is bound and righteousness overflows, even then men are free to come out in open rebellion and as sinners suffer the fate reserved for the sons of perdition. Manifestly, they being accursed would die the death with which we are familiar. That was by Elder McConkie. So even during the millennium when there is righteousness upon the earth, people will still be able to have agency and choose to, to be righteous or wicked. Those that choose to be wicked will then die as we normally know it. Uh, instead of being changed in the twinkling of an eye, they will have to be buried and come forth in the, in the resurrection after the end of the millennium. So that's interesting about translated beings, isn't it? So uh, the three Nephites then have asked uh, if they could then be um, to remain up upon the earth to do their to do a ministry among the people here, so that they can uh, they can help with uh, with the restoration and with uh, convincing people about the truthfulness of the gospel. Verse 15 then talks about how how they were transfigured. It says. Uh, whether they were in the body or out, they could not tell, for it did seem unto them like a transfiguration of them, that they were changed from this body of flesh into an immortal state, that they could behold the things of God. Now we know that when a person is has a terrestrial body, that they no longer have blood in their bodies, but some other spirit matter that flows in their veins. And so we know that, that that's probably what was happening, is that they got some sort of spiritual transfusion, I guess. This verse can be confusing uh, because the three Nephites were both transfigured and translated. They were transfigured when they were caught up into heaven and heard unspeakable things, and they were translated when a change was wrought upon their bodies, whereby they would remain on the earth to bring souls to Christ. Elder Holland said, A person who is transfigured is one who is temporarily taken into a higher heavenly experience, as were Peter, James, and John when they when and then return to a normal telestial status. That was during the time of the uh, Mount of Transfiguration when, when Peter, James, and John were transfigured. Translation, however, is the process by which a mortal body of the telestial order is changed to a mortal body of the terrestrial order. The word mortal in this sense means a being whose body and spirit have not been permanently united by the resurrection. We are telestial mortals, translated beings are terrestrial mortals, while exalted resurrected beings are celestial immortals. I hope that clarifies it. So we are telestial, translated beings are terrestrial, and those that are exalted, um, that have been exalted resurrected beings are celestial. It's interesting that in verse 25, uh, Mormon says that he was about to write the names of those who were never to taste of death, but the Lord forbade him to do that. Uh, if you look back at the names of the 12, at least we know that it's it's uh, three of those, isn't it? We also know from um, verse 28, 29, it says they will be among the Jews and the Jews shall know they're not. So the, the three Nephites will be here among us, but we just won't know who they are. Uh, and the experiences that they will have here, um, we, we just don't know who they're going to be or who they are. They may be among us and we just don't know it. I want to read you one other thing about the need for translated beings. Sometimes we think maybe that's not necessary, but uh, Harold B. Lee made a comment. Uh, he says, I have always wondered what the purpose of what the purpose was that there should be in the earth translated beings. I remember a few years ago, one of the brethren, J. Reuben Clark Jr., in a general conference made a statement like this that caused quite a flurry among the brethren. He said that gospel that gospel plan he gave, and when he gave it, he said it would never be taken again or taken away until the end of the world. It is my faith 
that the gospel plan has always been here, that his priesthood has always been here on the earth, and that it will continue to be so until the end comes. After that sermon was delivered, I walked over to the church office building with President Joseph Fielding Smith, and we were discussing this discourse. He said this, I believe that God has never for one moment of time since the creation abandoned the earth to Satan without having someone holding the priesthood to check him. To me, that was the answer as to why translated beings have been here on the earth always among men and will be until the coming of the Savior. And so that's another reason why it was important that there be translated beings so that they could keep Satan in check when there may not have been other priesthood upon the earth. And then in chapter 29, the Lord continues to say that uh, the words of the Book of Mormon are going to come forth among all the people, both Gentiles and Jews. Um, I think it's important in verse 2 where he says, Ye may know that the words of the Lord which have been spoken by the holy prophets shall all be fulfilled, and ye, ye need not say that the Lord delays his coming unto the children of Israel. Again, uh, the importance of, of watching for the second coming, uh, that there are signs that have been given, and uh, that we need to be watchful of that and not think that the Lord's delaying his coming. A careful review of the signs of the times demonstrates that things are close. In Mormon doctrine, Elder McConkie lists 51 signs of the times. By interpretation, 39 of these signs have already been fulfilled. Eight of them must yet be fulfilled prior to the second coming, and four of them are fulfilled at his coming and not before. Furthermore, these eight unfulfilled signs could easily be fulfilled in the matter of just a few years. You're probably wondering what are the eight signs yet to be fulfilled. How would you like to know? I'll tell you. The first one, return of the ten tribes. And that one might be also millennial, that that might be um, when the millennium happens or at the second coming. Verse two, or number two, New Jerusalem is going to be built, which will include the temple at New Jerusalem. And that's in Independence, Missouri. Three, the temple built in Jerusalem. Four, the gathering at Adam on Diamon, where there will be a great sacrament meeting, and, and then we will sustain Jesus as King of Kings. Five, a great hailstorm, which will destroy the crops of the earth. Six, a final great war to attend the second coming, which will be Armageddon fought in Israel. Seven, a special mission in Jerusalem of two Latter-day prophets uh, who, will, who will be there to uh, defend Israel during the Battle of Armageddon. And then eight, the great earthquake as never before seen. And I think that's when the earth, uh, when the continents of the earth all come back together as they were prior to, uh, to their uh, separation um, after the flood of Noah. And then chapter 30 is a very short uh, chapter, just a couple of verses, but he's calling everybody to repentance here. Uh, he says, O ye Gentiles, and hear the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, which he hath commanded me, that I should speak concerning you. For behold, he commandeth me that I should write. And he's telling us here to repent, to, to quit doing your evil things. Uh, and so that's the word that we have today from Jesus to all of us. Now, fourth Nephi is an account of the people of Nephi according to his record, the record that Nephi wrote. Uh, and this is about the righteousness of the Nephites uh, during the golden age of the Nephites. Uh, and this is a type of the millennial reign, so that during the millennium it will be very similar to this golden era of the Nephites. Now, when the Book of Mormon was originally published the first time, 3rd and 4th Nephi were, were just one chapter entitled the Book of Nephi. In the 1879 edition, Orson Pratt separated the two books into 3rd and 4th Nephi. And so uh, that's what we have today is 4th Nephi. So uh, as he goes on and explains about the, the conversion rate here, that it's pretty rapid, that uh, it only took about two years for all the people to be converted. Uh, this rapid conversion will also occur at the beginning of the millennium. We know that uh, 
that there will be many that join the church very quickly. Uh, some have said that it will be like within the first generation of people living during the millennium that will become members of the church during the millennium. So that'll be a great uh, time of peace and prosperity too. Now it's mentioning in verse 2 that there's no contentions or disputations. They had all things in common in verse 3. In other words, they were beginning to live the law of consecration, the law of the United Order. Uh, and so they had all this great peace and prosperity. Um, and it was just a wonderful time for them. It mentions that this there could never be a happier people among all the people than were, that were created than this uh, group of people here. Um, there was no contention for the, for the love of God did dwell in the hearts of the people, verse 15. And there were no envings or strifes, and, and uh, it says there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God in verse 16. Now it mentions in verse 24, now in the 201st year there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride. Here the insidious nature of pride is laid bare and its destructive effects on Zion are seen in an unmistakable way. Pride destroys unity and promotes selfishness. And so here we have the, the beginning of the end of the Nephite civilization just because of the pride that began, the divisiveness and the opposition. Um, in fact, divisiveness is, is the opposite of atonement. Atonement means at one or coming together. Divisiveness is just the opposite of that. And then down to verse, uh, in, in verse uh, 30, 31, they mentions how the disciples, meaning the three Nephites, among them are performing miracles, but the people hate them so much they're trying to kill them. Uh, it mentions in verse 32 that they were cast into furnaces of fire. Uh, they were in dens of wild beasts and they were unharmed. Uh, and so the people are trying to kill even those that are trying to bless them and help them. Uh, it just makes no sense that that happens this way. And then in verse 38, it mentions that there began a bit, again to be Lamanites and Lemuelites and Ishmaelites and that they did dwindle in unbelief. Uh, but they did willfully rebel. It's not that they, that they, um, they did, it says they did not dwindle in unbelief, but rather they willful, did willfully, willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ. And they did teach their children that they should not believe even as their fathers. And so now they're beginning to come out in open rebellion against that which they knew to be true. Then in verse 42, it mentions that the Gadianton robbers are going to begin again among them, and that's going to also be the downfall of the entire civilization. Um, and so verse 46, uh, the robbers of Gadianton did spread over the face of the land, and there were none that were righteous, save it were the disciples of Jesus. Now that's a, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. It's not that there were none righteous, because we know that Mormon and his family were righteous, uh, but it's uh, getting fewer and fewer. Down to verse 47, it came to pass that uh, the 305 years had passed away. Amos, who had been keeping the record after Nephi died, uh, his father or his son Amos also had it. And then his brother Amaron did keep the record in his stead. Uh, and so now 320 years had passed away and Amaron was constrained to hide up the records. And so now the, the gold plates and, and all the records that uh, had been had been safeguarded by the prophets are now going to have to be hit up because there's fewer and fewer righteous people and and those wicked people may destroy what's been preserved for thousands of years or almost a thousand years and so Amaron has to hide them up somewhere and so he does that in verse 49 uh, that he hides them up unto the Lord uh, so we know again like that I'm saying not everybody was wicked there were still some who kept the commandments but by and large uh, Amaron has to hide the plates so that uh, the wicked don't get them and destroy them. I bear testimony that these things are true that this is translated material that we're reading from translated by the gift and power of God and I bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. Bye.